0: Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children COVID-19 update for February 11th, 2021. I'm Carol Vassar. Today, co-hosts Dr. Jay Greenspan and Dr. Mo Leffler delve into all things COVID-19, pregnant women, and babies. Their guest is neonatologist Dr. Mark Hudak, professor and chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Florida School of Medicine in Jacksonville, where he also serves as section chief for the Division of Neonatology. In less than one year, Dr. Hudak, with help from healthcare colleagues from across the nation, has stood up a registry to examine how COVID 19 affects mothers and babies. He'll provide an overview of some of the data from that registry, data that is already proving useful in helping physicians guide women through pregnancy in the midst of this pandemic. First up, of course, is a COVID 19 situational update from Drs. Greenspan and Leffler.
1: Hello everybody, this is Jay Greenspan and uh, Mo Leffler and I are gonna give you uh, the situational update for today, which is 2-10-2021. We are seeing some good news and some scary news on, on the COVID front. We have seen our death rate slowly fall in the United States of America. We are seeing now a death about every 35 seconds versus a death every 20 seconds previously. So our death rates falling, our COVID numbers are dropping. Uh, and we are seeing some, hopefully, impact of the vaccine and all of your social distancing and masking. How are our associates doing, Mel?
2: The numbers have been really encouraging. It's really nice to see that we are being asked to test less associates. Less associates are sick. We have less positive COVID-positive associates. I think last week we had five COVID-positive associates across the entire organization, and we're hovering around the same this week. And again, our rates of vaccination have been great. We've done as good of a job as we can to date, and we're going to keep hoping that we can continue vaccinating our associates. So lots of encouraging news um, with our associates.
1: That's great news, Mo. And I I do ask everybody to continue to mask and social distance and wash your hands. This is not going away. Anytime, real soon, and 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 the downside that we're seeing are these variants. Variants are pretty high in Florida. The statistics that we're seeing could even lead to a growth in COVID numbers, uh, particularly in areas like Florida, in Delaware, Delaware Valley. We're not doing as much sequencing, so we don't know how much how much of our COVID positivity is from variants. Uh, We do think so far that the variants are being. Uh, impacted by vaccine and so vaccine still seems to be working but the sooner we get everybody vaccinated, uh, the sooner we're going to get this under control and the less time we give the the virus to change. so please continue to not only do yourself a favor by by masking and, and all that, but encourage your communities to continue to do that. Anything else you want to add on our situational update Mo?
2: No, you took the words out of my mouth. I think we have two weapons in our arsenal. If you're feeling nervous about the news about variants, there are still things you can do. Get vaccinated, encourage others to get vaccinated, and wear your mask. We saw pretty clearly how much of a positive impact universal masking could have on decreasing rates of infection and death.
1: And by the way, it seems to be impacting flu and RSV too. So interesting. Today, um, uh, we have a guest that's right up my alley. We finally get to talk about babies. So Dr. Mark Kudak is professor and chair of Department of Pediatrics and University of Florida School of Medicine in Jacksonville. And he's chief of the division of neonatology there. Welcome to our podcast, Mark. You yeah, know, this week we'll be talking about, you know, all things baby. But first you spent 15 years, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and then five years in the Children's Hospital of Buffalo. And I knew you grew up in New England, but now you beelined it down to Florida. Do uh, you want us to share some of the snow with, with
3: you? That oh, we're- I would love you to have some snow down in Florida. It would be so exciting just to uh, see the reaction of people down here. And in addition to your
1: uh, role at the University of Florida and in Jacksonville. You were also the the immediate past president of our uh, society, which is Perinatal Neonatal Medicine for the American Academy. And we had you visit Hot Topics, uh, which we'll get to a little bit because you gave a great talk. And that's one of the reasons I I really wanted to have you on this podcast, because you are all things babies for the United States of America. And I think you're gonna give us some great information. But before we get to that, do you want to talk a little bit about your role, your roles in in Jacksonville and your relationship to Nemours? Because I know you are connected to our Nemours team in Jacksonville.
3: Yeah, sure. So I'm the um, division chief for neonatology at University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville and also chair of the department. And we have a very interesting medical pediatric specialty situation in Jacksonville. Between University of Florida and uh, the Nemours Children's Specialty Services, you know, we provide all specialties and all services to children. The only things we don't do in Jacksonville are um, serious burn injuries, which we we transport to the burn center in Gainesville, and also some solid organ transplants. But everything else is really state-of-the-art here. Um, Nemours and UF do not share any specialties with the exception of infectious diseases. And even there, there's a division of labor. So we collaborate rather than compete. Um, We both practice at the Jacksonville's uh, Pediatric Hospital, which is a non-UF facility, Wolfson Children's Hospital. And uh, we have great collaborative relationships clinically and uh, otherwise professionally.
2: Um, I'm curious, how are you and your UF team handling um, the stress um, that's emerged among healthcare workers as a result of COVID-19? Lots of changes, um, lots of uncertainty, lots of fear. How's that going for you and your group?
3: Well, I think it is at a better place now than it was when we started because there was a lot of uncertainty and fear at the beginning with respect to protection of yourself and your family and your loved ones. And I think, as time has gone on and people have you know adopted uh, appropriate infection prevention measures, we've recognized that really the NICU is probably one of the safest places to be. You know your risk is really from, I think, your coworkers in the hospital um, and then also from you know anybody outside the hospital that you socialize with. So, we've had a few people who've tested positive. Um, you know, one person who got quite ill, but luckily recovered. But it's been low, and I think people's mental health now is better. We have not been in the position that we've had such a bad adult outbreak that, uh, as in other places like New York City, the neonatologists have been co opted to manage patients in the adult hospital or in the adult ICU, thank God. And, uh, you know, hopefully, um, as you said, things will start to begin to get better for everybody.
1: And, and Mark, I mentioned you're immediate past chair for Neonatal Paternary Division of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And in that capacity, you did a really remarkable study on COVID-19 that, that was titled COVID-19 in Mothers and Infants US Experience.
3: Tell us what you found on that study. So back last year, you know, back in February and March, when it became clear that this was going to be a major perturbation for us in perinatal medicine. The section decided to uh, set up a real-time registry. So we really needed to know certain things like how common was perinatal transmission? What was the natural history and the clinical features of infection in the newborn? What, if any, were any risk factors that we could identify for infection? What infection control practices, if any, might modify the rate of transmission? such as you know, separation of the baby from the mother um, as opposed to rooming in or postponement of breastfeeding. And, and you know that there was a great debate in the early months about the appropriate best practices. Uh, we had a schism uh, really between the AAP recommendations and European WHO recommendations, each set of recommendations being based on real paucity of data and more philosophical than scientific. Luckily, you know, over time, as data has come in on the registry, um, you know, we've been able to relax some of those guidelines for the AAP. With the registry, we made the promise to update all of the investigators in real time once a week with the current results that they've reported. And we've done that. And this was really important because these are volunteers who, you know, basically are doing this at um, no compensation And the promise was they would have the information in real time necessary to be able to modify their professional and hospital practices. So I can report that, you know, we have nearly 300 centers now from across the United States, from 45 states, the district, and Puerto Rico. 240 centers have actually contributed information on anywhere from 1 to 160 mother-infant dyads. As of this morning, we've got 7,271 dyads in the active arm of the registry. We did start a second registry in May when it became apparent that mothers could test positive as anybody could test positive for a very long time. So a test didn't indicate that you had active infection. And we we're also interested in looking at the long-term effects of Covid, you know on fetuses. Did it increase the risk of preterm birth? Did it adversely affect fetal growth? Did it cause a particular pattern of congenital anomalies? So those are questions that are outstanding. So, you know, from the beginning, you know, we've really noticed that there's been an overrepresentation of minority populations, specifically the black and the Hispanic populations. And I think, you know, this has improved over time, but it's still very predominant. I do not think it reflects the uh, distribution of centers. I think this is a real finding, and I think if you look at some of the reports out of New York that show that the reason that minorities are overrepresented has to do with the crowding within a household you know, low income and other factors, I think there's a rationale for that. This is changing now as SARS-CoV-2 is beginning to spread, has spread to non-minority communities. So second, you know, mothers can be quite ill with this. We've had six mothers in the registry who've actually died due to complications of COVID. So that's quite a high rate considering. Um, Every COVID maternal death is an additional maternal mortality. It doesn't substitute for anything. We've also found out that mothers, most mothers who test positive for COVID are asymptomatic. That is, other than the complaints associated with pregnancy, there's nothing specific that jumps out that says, you know, I'm infected with COVID. Um, In terms of how these mothers are delivered, there was a very high rate of cesarean section birth. That has declined over time, you know, suggesting that we have perhaps improved our ability to manage disease in mothers, or maybe we've become more comfortable with mothers having some degree of illness um, or that perhaps some of our cesarean sections were done unnecessarily. And as time has gone on, we've taken a more conservative approach. The fourth finding is that relatively few infants have tested positive by PCR testing for SARS-CoV-2 in the hospital. The overall rate is now slightly over 2%. All of these infants, Um, have been uh, discharged home except for one very preterm baby who died of late onset pseudomonas sepsis. So no COVID related mortalities. But a caveat is that this rate seems to be ticking up over the past few weeks. Is that because we're now a little bit more cavalier about this, you know, the perinatal ward, uh, less careful about taking the appropriate infection prevention measures? or does this represent perhaps a surge in the prevalence of the more highly transmissible COVID variants? So I think that's to be answered. Another thing we've noticed that mothers who, that we know have acquired infection close to the time of delivery are more likely to transmit uh, this to their babies and also mothers who are sick clinically with COVID are more likely. Another thing we've noticed that when we compared. Positive testing babies to negative testing babies, we saw that more of the positive testing babies were born to minority women. They had a lower mean gestational age, a lower mean birth weight and a longer length of stay. But then again, you know, we don't really know what a positive test means. Luckily, many of the infants in the registry have had two or more tests. And I can tell you that we've had 10 babies who tested positive initially who mm-hmm. subsequently tested negative. So does this mean that these babies had some transient colonization that they cleared, or does it represent that they had false positive tests which have been reported? I'll just note that uh, Dr. Sanchez Luna and his colleagues who reported in pediatrics this month um, from the Spanish registry found a similar phenomenon. 13 of the 14 babies who tested positive on the first test tested negative on subsequent tests. And they also found, like we have, that of 144 babies who tested negative on an initial test, four babies tested positive on a subsequent test. So that's what we can tell you. I don't know if those are true infections. We certainly don't know what the mode of transmission really is. So are these positive tests due to transplant transmission, perinatal transmission, or postnatal horizontal transmission? We just don't know. Um, the field is changing very rapidly. Um, just yesterday, the um, WHO released a document that put together some rigorous definitions for what's transplantal, what's perinatal, what's postnatal. Um, very difficult to tell. It would require a lot of specialized testing to even even try. So those are some of the things I can share with you off the top of my head.
1: Well, wow, that's really you're chock full of incredibly important information. And I will say, you know, we've seen women get sick, and you've, you've validated that COVID isn't as nasty in pregnancy, and as is flu, and but babies are not getting it very often. You're talking 2%, uh, at, and, and that the, even those babies are doing quite well, and we saw that, and we all took a big sigh of relief, you know, not seeing a lot of COVID illness, what have you done recently about separating moms from babies, if mom's positive, breastfeeding, anything else you can tell, particularly our lay folks that
3: are thinking about having babies? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I think, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons we set up the registry was to try to tease out what the implications of certain practices were. And what I can tell you is that the rate of infants testing positive does not appear to be affected by whether an infant rooms in or separated, interestingly. It's actually absolutely slightly higher in babies who are separated, but the confounder is that babies who are separated tend to be born to mothers who are actually ill with COVID. So, um, and those are the mothers who are, you know, more um, likely to transmit this to their babies. There's not an independent uh, predictor of increased infection with separation for sure, right? Breastfeeding, you know, initially there was a lot of circumspection about breastfeeding. Our data have allowed those caveats to be relaxed. Uh, We never uh, recommended completely not to breastfeed. We recommended breastfeeding with appropriate skin and uh, respiratory precautions. And uh, we have not been able to identify a specific uh, risk of breastfeeding in this uh, registry. There have been a lot of reports about breast uh, milk being found to be PCR positive, but nobody, to my knowledge at this point, and of course it may have changed by this morning, uh, has actually been able to um, isolate replicable virus from breast milk. And of course, breast milk may provide protection to the baby in terms of having specific antibodies that the baby ingests that may be helpful. So I think uh, in terms of the care of the baby, we've sort of come back to um, normalizing care with, of course, the caveats that, you know, a mother who is recently infected or is, um, has symptoms uh, needs to take the usual precautions in terms of good um, hand washing, masking, those sort of care measures um, and so forth. So I think uh, those are some of the things to comment on there.
2: So you know, COVID's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Um, but hopefully, people will keep having babies. What kind of advice or counsel would you give to women who are starting to think about having a baby at this point in time, as it relates to COVID?
3: So I would say, if you're planning on becoming pregnant or you are pregnant, you need to really be careful and take all the precautions to make sure that you don't you don't acquire this virus. Tori Metz, um, she just presented at the Society for Maternal-Fetal Medicine in late January, um, and her data from her um, maternal-fetal network show that pregnant women are not more likely to acquire SARS infection, but if they get sick with it, they are more likely to have mortality and other pregnancy complications, such as preterm birth, preeclampsia, cardiovascular events, thrombotic events compared to pregnant women who do not have COVID. So there is a risk to women if they do get COVID. And of course it's unpredictable. So that's the first thing, don't get COVID. The second thing, get vaccinated when your number is called, all right? And again, there's a lot of controversy about this. ACOG has released a guidance saying that pregnant women should be vaccinated if they don't have any specific contraindications. Just today, the WHO came out with advice saying that pregnant women should not receive the Moderna vaccine. I'm going to have to dig into that to figure out why that is. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. But I think um, infection prevention, vaccination, those are the things I would say.
2: And still have babies.
3: And still have babies, yeah.
2: Your registry is amazing. Like so many other things that happened this year, it's just amazing when... What we can accomplish in a time of need. To have a registry of seven thousand dyads in less than one year—it's just amazing. Congratulations! No,
3: it's it's, it's uh, really remarkable. And again, I want to echo what Jay said. Uh, I can't thank all the volunteers who have contributed—you know—enough for this. I mean, they've been selfless. They've been fiscally uncompensated. I think this just gets at the fact that you know we're all privileged to be members of a group of dedicated physicians and allied health professionals. I think by the choice of career in newborn medicine, all of these people have some core qualities that uh, make this much more likely to happen. So it's been really rewarding. I think.
2: Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Do you have any um, other final things that you think would be really important for pediatricians, those that work in pediatric healthcare, or just the community as a whole to hear? Well, I think
3: I think with respect to COVID, I've probably said more than enough. I would say that. Uh, just talking about the section and uh, you know what the section does um, to put in a plug we've we've revised our strategic plan and uh, we have a strong emphasis in each of the domains of our strategic plan on uh, inclusion diversity equity and access so we've really tried to sort of uh, come together on this if you go to the section website we have a statement on systemic racism and equity so we really sort of want to expand this and, and it involves all of us. I mean, it involves, you know, not only the patients you care for, but our colleagues and everything. And I think we want to take this time to, um, you know, really solicit input from our membership as to, you know, things we can do, how we can help our members recognize and do better in these areas. So that's, that would be what I would say. So, Mo, we have a question from our COVID-19 mailbox. You want to read this one?
2: Yeah, Sure. The recommendations on how long to wait for the second dose of the two-dose series seem to be changing to allow more time between doses. Some experts are suggesting that we skip the second dose altogether in order to get the vaccine to more people. What are your thoughts on the science and what Nemours should be doing?
3: Great question. Precious little data to hang your hat on. I think that The data for both the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccination shows that efficacy increases after a second dose. Um, You know, the times at which those doses were administered, um, you know, 21 days and 28 days respectively are kind of arbitrary. I think that probably um, just looking at extrapolation from other scientific uh, data that you could lengthen that interval between doses and still achieve nearly the same effect. I think that will be studied, but I don't think it's a good idea to just have one dose. Uh, I worry that if you get one dose and don't get a second dose for six months, you might have to have the entire series again.
0: Dr. Mark Hudak is professor and chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Florida School of Medicine in Jacksonville, where he also serves as section chief for the Division of Neonatology. Thanks ever so much to Dr. Hudak for taking the time to be with us on the podcast. This Saturday, February 13th, we'll have a bonus episode of the Champions for Children podcast, highlighting the pioneering orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Claudia Thomas, as we honor Black History Month. That's coming this Saturday, February 13th. Please join us. The Nemours Champions for Children podcast is available on Net and the Now app, as well as your favorite place to find podcasts. You may also ask your smart speaker to play the podcast. Our amazing production team includes Dr. Maureen Leffler, Dr. Jay Greenspan, Sandra Herman, Cheryl Munn, Deborah Griffin, and Peter Adebi. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. On behalf of Dr. Mark Hudak, Dr. Mo Leffler, and Dr. Jay Greenspan, I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for listening to this COVID-19 update episode of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children we serve.